This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. On this episode, we will see the mighty be humbled, and the humbled, well, they'll be brought even lower than they were, sadly. But that's the inclination of powerful people, right? When they eat a little humble pie, they like others to eat a bigger portion of humble pie. Robert Giesgard hits a low on this episode. What in the world could pull such a monumental character down from such a high throne? What if I told you it started with a spider? This is episode 116, and it's entitled The Siege of Palermo 1064. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. On our latest Patreon episode entitled A Pisan Delegation, we learned about an offer that Roger just couldn't refuse. Sorry, I couldn't help it. We're talking about Sicily. It just seemed to fit. If you want more detail about this event, which occurred in 1063 in the wake of Roger's victory at Cerami, as well as some historical context surrounding Mediterranean trade and the fractured nature of the Italian peninsula as a whole, We'll check out the, that Patreon episode, but for now, for our purposes here, the basics are this. Pisa was one of two major, great Western Mediterranean powers in terms of naval supremacy and maritime trade. The other powerhouse was the second largest city in the entire European world during the 11th century, Palermo. Pisa had been watching the Normans and their conquests of both southern Italy and now Sicily quite closely, and they sent their finest fleet and their most decorated admiral to offer Roger, essentially, the Pisan navy in exchange for demolishing Palermo as a major maritime hub of trade, or at least bring it under Christian rule. Basically, Roger could keep Palermo and the Pisans could become the undisputed rulers of the western Mediterranean waves. So again, It was an offer that Roger couldn't refuse. Until he did, in fact, refuse it. Yeah, the Pisans stormed out in a huff and turned right around and smashed the harbor at Palermo in retaliation. Palermo, being the gigantic city it was, and powerful and wealthy to boot, used its resources and they recovered rather quickly, actually, within just a matter of a few months, maybe less. But the Pisans were clearly mad about Roger's snub. As it was, both Palermo and Pisa remained locked in a power struggle over the western Mediterranean, and Roger de Hauteville could have eliminated the Muslim part of the equation there. Why he turned the Pisans down is quite honestly beyond me. Can't quite figure it out. According to Malaterra in his chronicle called The Deeds of Count Roger and His Brother Robert Giscard, Roger didn't quite snub the Pisans in the way that history makes it out to be, or at least the Chronica Pisana, the Chronicle of Pisa, made it out to be. Both Malaterra and John Julius Norwich in his book, The Other Conquest, well, they both agree. So we'll stick with Malaterra's account as it was about nine centuries closer to the actual events. Malaterra writes, quote, The Count was busy with a number of matters and was reluctant to go forth immediately. He sent instructions to them to wait for a little while, until he had dealt with those matters with which he was at present engaged. End quote. Malaterra adds that the Pisans were far more 
merchants than soldiers, and apparently business couldn't wait. Pisa attacked Palermo and ran away after stealing their harbor chain, and that was that. As for Roger and his many matters to address before agreeing to team up with the mighty Pisan fleet, well, he busied himself with the harassment of the Sicilian countryside, unwilling to allow the locals to have a moment's peace. It was, in my opinion, terrorism by definition. And this is what Roger and his Normans did between the Pisan delegation in August of 1063 and, say, March of 1064, when Robert Giscard, back in Apulia, had tired of hearing reports of Roger's forces being harassed in return. How dare they, right? It's important to know that the Sicilians weren't all that innocent themselves in what was happening. They, too, were fighting back and harassing Roger's forces. One story Duke Robert heard was how, on a raid, Roger sent a forward advance of several handfuls of knights ahead to start the pestering before his larger force came in. These men were confronted by both Arabs and North African mercenaries, and the Norman knights uncharacteristically went screaming for the steep mountain crags to escape their enemy. Roger rushed forward and saw the scene, and in that moment he was so angry, not at the enemy, but his own men, that he ignored the Saracen fighters, climbed the mountain where his men were cowering, and berated them relentlessly until they came out of their hiding places and joined Roger's forces again. Of course, Malaterra offers another rousing speech by Roger here with some some, some pretty good lines, if you ask me. Some lines like, Let us remember our ancestors! And... Remember how many thousand enemies you defeated at Chirami with fewer men than there are here now? And fortune favors you. I'm not sure if Malaterra really liked rousing speeches or Roger did, but it makes for some pretty good reading nonetheless. Either way, this story, among so many others, reached Robert Giscard's ears, but these stories seem to always include the death of some valiant Norman knight or another. This specific story I just mentioned included the death of a Norman named Walter de Similia. According to Malaterra, quote, a man highly regarded for his military exploits and, sad to say, in the flower of his youth. Fighting bravely, he had been struck down by the enemy and killed and was greatly mourned, end quote. Imagine story after story of this type. We can't lose sight that the same stories were told on the other side of the conflict in Sicily as well, and the Muslim populations also mourned their dead greatly. I wish I had those records to report on them as well. I guess that's war, right? But again, story after story was told across the Norman world of these men, and the Normans, all things considered, were a relatively homogenous people. They fought together and against each other, but they knew each other. And when a name was mentioned, they most likely knew or knew of that particular person. Throughout the winter of 1063 to 1064, Duke Robert in Apulia became sick of hearing all these Normans being cut down, especially those in their prime, like young Walter de Similia. He rustled together the necessary men, funds, supplies, horses, and made his way toward Sicily. In March, Roger met the Duke in the city of Casenza in Calabria, which you could picture being on top of the foot of the peninsula. The Count and the Duke discussed the situation, and Robert decided it may be time to hit the Sicilians where it hurt the most, 
their capital city of Palermo. But in order to get their men ready for battle, they felt the need to once again terrorize the Calabrian countryside. Again, I suppose for no other reason but to battle-harden their own men before they went into Sicily. Yes, sadly, that was a tactic. <laughs> so Robert and Roger took their hundred cavalry and or excuse me, their hundreds of cavalry and thousand plus infantry, and they attacked the castle at Rogliano near the town of Casenza. Then they moved to a castle called Aiello, also near Casenza, setting up a siege only to just leave after that. The siege, however, would last four months. So Robert would return in June or July of that year to settle the whole affair. However, they did engage in a small skirmish with the people of Aiello. Malaterra tells us that, quote, both sides fought bravely with each suffering casualties. Our men became extremely angry, and while they were attacking the enemy, where their ranks were the thickest and striving to break through them, Roger, son of Skulkandus, was hit by a javelin and thrown from his horse. When his nephew Gilbert tried to rescue him, he too was unhorsed, and both were killed. End quote. At the news and conclusion of the battle that day, the entire army mourned the loss of these two beloved young men, showing once again that there was a human element, as there always is, and as people tend to forget about when discussing such things. Well, there's a human element to war, despite the side you happen to be rooting for. Concerning Roger, son of Skulkandus, and his nephew Gilbert, Malaterra tells us that, quote, the Duke and his whole army were saddened by their deaths, for they were among the familiares who were dearest to him. He ordered their bodies be buried at St. Euphemia, where he had recently founded an abbey in honor of the Holy Mary, Mother of God. He gave their horses and other property to this same church for their salvation, end quote. And with that, Robert ordered the entire army on to Sicily. There was a lot of context here, so I hope I've, I've done a good enough job keeping it together. Some main things we can't lose sight of concern the Muslim side of the recent battle. So the Battle of Chirami was a massive blow to Saracen morale. But the Saracen side of things, they were far more complex than Chirami just being a loss. See, the Sicilians, having invited a steady stream of Berber mercenaries to the island to help fight the Normans, well, the Sicilians were increasingly under more and more pressure to start producing results. The Zirids across the sea were putting more pressure on local leadership in Sicily as well. The Zirids had sent their two princes, named Ayub and Ali, to, to lead some of these mercenary forces, and Ayub and Ali were at the Battle of Chirami. And the eldest prince, Ayub, was really not happy with how Amir ibn al-Hawas had handled things during the battle and since. So there was the internal Muslim conflict brewing as well. Of course, we have the recent Pisan delegation being rejected by Roger, which, in light of Robert's decision to, within a few months, simply return, or excuse me, simply turn right around and attack Palermo, seems, I don't know, like one of the biggest whiffs of the 11th century, if not beyond. I, I still can't figure it out. It's kind of bothering me. From there, throw in those near-constant raids by Roger, and you can see how Sicily's turning into quite the boiling pot lately. 
Ultimately, though, capturing Enna was the real jewel in the conquest of Sicily. Its central location made it the perfect location to attack any enemy from any location on the island, and it being located on top of an incredibly steep and formidable mountaintop made it easy to defend. Enna seemed to have it all. Throw in a fierce and intelligent enemy that was Ibn al-Hawas, even if Roger had bested him and humiliated him at Chirami, made it even harder to take. So even if Enna was the real prize in the conquest, capturing Palermo would most likely deal a death blow to the Muslim morale and will, and will to fight. Enna was a fortress, but Palermo was a bank and a market and a place of great historical and cultural pride within the Saracen population across the island. This, in my estimation, is why Robert decided to move on Palermo. By April of 1064, Duke Robert reached Messina and, gathering the Sicilian Normans, they marched along the northern coastal lands of Sicily for a week before finally reaching the foothills of the Conca di Oro, the mountain range bordering the southern edge of Palermo itself. It had been a very tense week, to be honest, as the island again was chock full of roving bands of North African mercenaries, as well as Sicily, being simply a a highly volatile and hostile place for Normans. At any moment, they could be ambushed by a swift-moving Muslim force. But these threats never manifested, and as I said, they reached Palermo's outskirts, unscathed but unnerved. Unable to quite accept their good fortune, Duke Robert confidently ordered his men to make their way up to the top of a high hill, which would give them a good vantage point of the Concadioro to the north. He knew without a doubt that the Palermitans were watching his every move from their even higher vantage points in the mountains. But, one problem at a time. Get out of a low area. That was problem number one. Setting up camp on this hill, Robert began hearing reports very quickly, of his men being terrorized by the bites of large insects. These bites weren't just any bites, and pain was the least of their concerns, it seems. Sorry to laugh. Uh, Malaterra writes of the symptoms of these bites. I'm not going to lie, it's kind of funny. But he says that those bitten by this supposed insect is filled, quote, with a great and deadly wind. They cannot get rid of this wind, which bursts forth noisily and disgustingly from their behinds, and unless a heated vessel or something else boiling hot is speedily applied, they are said to be in deadly danger, end quote. So these insects gave them, quote unquote, deadly wind that noisily and disgustingly explodes from their backsides, huh? Well, it turns out these insects were actually Zelotes messinae, or commonly known as the rare Sicilian tarantula, thereby all accounts quite elusive and tend to keep to themselves. Growing to about 5 inches, or 12 centimeters long, they tend to find homes in dark corners of buildings, or without any nearby homes, they are known to burrow into the ground during the colder months. These spiders have been known for millennia, no doubt. But Richard Brown tells us that they weren't actually cataloged until 1994, which I find interesting. 
considering there were there was an entire dance craze during the 16th and 17th centuries based on the symptoms of the spider bite. They called the dance, if some of you might remember, the Tarantella, popularized in many ways since then, notably where I personally first heard about it back in college 20 years ago plus, when I read Henry Ibsen's The Doll's House for a literature class. In addition to deadly flatulence, these bites can cause a hysteria of sorts, medicine calls tarantism, which includes uncontrollable whooping and hollering, as well as the need to just move, which could include jumping, flailing around, or even dancing. In fact, the tarantella is directly related to this phenomena, and to my knowledge is the only dance ever to be actually prescribed as medication for those suffering from tarantism. So consider this when you imagine Duke Robert walking through his encampment outside of Palermo. He's dead set on taking the capital city, but he's watching his brave knights suffering from this, this farting dance mania. And let's be honest, if Malatari is correct, the sm- I'm sorry, the smell must have been stifling. Okay, fine. I'm having fun with this. But in my defense, even Malatara says that, quote, those who have escaped this, it seems a source of humor, end quote. See, it's not just me. And I know some of you are laughing too, so. Now, once he figured it out, Duke Robert ordered a move to another hilltop. But by this time, the nerves of his men, already frayed by a shouldn't have been peaceful journey through hostile territory, was simply shot at this point. And what's to say they wouldn't receive the same curse on the next hilltop? See, the Sicilian tarantulas, as I said, burrowed into the ground to keep warm during Sicily's chillier months. And they emerged, like all creatures who hibernate, or just at least tuck themselves away for the winter, they emerged when the air warmed. It was April. It was just absolute terrible timing, to be quite honest. They happened to hit a tarantula infestation just as the ground was warming, and these tarantulas emerged at night when everyone was sleeping. Again, what's to say that this next hilltop didn't have tarantulas on them? But Duke Robert ordered his men to set up camp there, still in sight of the Concadioro, and the siege of Palermo began there in mid-April of 1064. And by June, Robert had to finally accept that the siege was simply not working. Like, like at all. No, really, like, it was embarrassingly sad. What's more is that I can't possibly imagine how Roger's denial of the Pisan fleet didn't cross their minds during these three months. If Duke Robert had the use of the Pisan navy, they could harass both sides of the mighty city which would most likely force the city to either surrender or, or make some desperate attempt to break the siege, opening it up. But their reality was what it was, and the Pisan navy was not a part of their reality. Not by June of 1064. Their reality was filled with a humiliating land-based siege of a prosperous port city. Well, and tarantulas. In truth, they did effectively blockade the land-based trade coming in and out of the city. Between Robert and Roger, they had some some of the keenest and most experienced fighting men in all of Europe. This group included the likes of their intelligent, brave, and capable nephew, Serlo II, as well as the deadly scoundrel, Roussel de Bayol, 
and so many more warriors whose names are lost to history. I will say, though, that um, this was a time when uh, Robert Giscard's son, now the bastard son, of course, um, Bohemond, well, he was about 11 years old at this time. He could have very well been at his father's side at 11 years old there at the Siege of Palermo. It's just something to keep in mind because we are going to have a whole lot to say about Bohemond of Toronto later on on the podcast. However, at the end of the day, all Robert Giscard's men were doing was canceling out one stream of income, and that stream of income was hardly the city's most lucrative. Didn't even come close to it, actually. Sure, the Pisans have ravaged the harbor months earlier, but really all that resulted from it was the loss of their harbor chain, which was replaced. Palermo was rich enough to buy another, surely, and the harbor chain wasn't even on Robert's radar during the siege for obvious reasons. Between April and June of 1064, the Normans were were reduced to nothing more than merely an annoyance, which was the ultimate humiliation. Norwich writes, quote, Saracen shipping continued to pass freely through the harbor mouth, and the Palermitans seemed scarcely even inconvenienced, end quote. That last part must have stung the worst for the likes of any of those Normans out there. Robert had to call a spade for a spade. The siege of Palermo had been an absolute travesty and failure in nearly every sense of the word. His men had been terrorized by spiders, and the city he was besieging had barely noticed he was besieging them. It was pretty humiliating. So Robert Giscard picked it all up and left in mid-June. But he couldn't go home empty-handed, of course. That would simply be one humiliation too far. So what he did was, on his way home, he took a little detour, and he harassed the countryside in the hopes someone would pull together an army and confront him on a battlefield. However, from the Muslim standpoint, it was as if they collectively recognized the power of humiliation within the Norman psyche. It was as if they all understood that if they confronted Duke Robert on the battlefield, the Normans could possibly save some face, because if history was any indicator, the Normans would most likely pull out a victory, given that there was no formal Saracen slash North African army in place at the time. No, the humiliation was the real prize for the Western Sicilians in early summer 1064. That said, in order to ensure such humiliation, they would collectively have to come to grips with the fact that they would simply have to let the Normans sweep through virtually unopposed, which was also a tough pill to swallow. Again, though, the Norman humiliation was the larger win for the Sicilians here. Robert Giscard pulled his Norman army out of Palermo and moved south toward the city of Agrigento, a city it's worth mentioning that, being in proximity to the North African mainland, that Prince Ayub, remember he's the Zirid prince who also suffered the embarrassment at the hands of Roger at Chirami a year earlier, well, Agrigento was the city where Prince Ayub had the most loyalty, and Ayub was at the time harboring his own deep resentment toward Roger and those Normans. Now, along the way, Robert was able to completely capture the village of Bugamo, which no longer exists, mainly because Robert, having evacuated all the women and children, taking them hostages, by the way, completely leveled the village afterward. 
It was a horrific show of force that sent ripples across western Sicily for sure. They eventually made it to the city of Agrigento, and they set up camp right outside. Just needling Prince Ayub. Malaterra tells us the following, quote, The inhabitants of that city were far too confident in their own strength, and shouting noisily, they burst forth from the gates and attacked them. But their rash assault was beaten off by their enemies, who, as they fled, pursued them right up to the city, or excuse me, to the gates of their city. The Duke then left, and after his arrival in Calabria, he brought the expedition to an end. end quote. As for the many inhabitants of Bugamo, which no longer exists again due to Robert, Robert's horrible treatment of the city, Malaterra tells us of their fate once they reached Calabria. Quote, he had the people of Bugamo, whom he had taken prisoner, brought to Scribla, the place which he had previously abandoned, and restored it by settling them there, end quote. Having made it back to Calabria, in a certain amount of shame, no doubt, Norwich adds the following, quote, He now had to face the fact that, in the Muslims of western Sicily, he was faced with a stronger and more determined enemy than any that he or his family had yet encountered, Lombard, Frankish, or Byzantine. As 1064 drew to a close, it began to look as if the Norman advance had reached its limit. But Giscard wasn't finished lashing out. After making it back to the mainland with Count Roger, mind you, Duke Robert learned of some things kicking off in Apulia. Yeah, again. It's like every time Robert dared to leave Apulia, either the Byzantines or the peasantry would rise and revolt against him. It was turning into really a national pastime for the southern Italians. But this rebellion was unlike the others. So in the interest of giving it its due, I'd like to discuss it on the next episode. However, I want to point out that while that rebellion is kicking off, Duke Robert actually found the time to engage in something we'll call Bugamo Part 2. Robert moved east across the foot of the peninsula to a town called Policastro, on the bottom of the foot of the peninsula, if you can picture it. Malaterra tells us, quote, He destroyed the castrum of Policastro and settled all its inhabitants at Nicotera, which he founded in that same year, end quote. Nicotera is located on the northern coast of Calabria, too. So why he, why he moved the population from the southern part of the foot to the northern part of the foot is beyond me. But the records indicate a pattern of such behavior. Was it simply a move to establish his power, his ability to even do such things? Beyond that, I'm not really sure why he did it. But Duke Robert, at the end of the day, well, Duke Robert did what Duke Robert wanted to do. And surprisingly, Malaterra gives us a little thousand-year-old insight to, as, as it says, the sons of Tancred. He writes, quote, For the natural and customary inclination of the sons of Tancred was always to be greedy for rule, to the very utmost of their powers. They were unable to put up with anybody in their vicinity holding lands and possessions without being envious and immediately seizing these by force and rendering everything subject to their authority, end quote. It seems on the surface like biting the hand that feeds you. If you remember, Malaterra's benefactor for this chronicle was none other than Count Roger himself. So, wrapping this whole episode up, I'd, I'd say it was a bit of a humbling experience for our mighty Norman protagonists. Roger was forced into a secondary role, 
naturally being a count under his duke, and Robert was forced into an unwinnable situation in a sad attempt at taking the second mightiest city in the medieval world at the time. In addition to this, we see a little Norman petulance in Robert's behavior before and after the failed siege of Palermo. And on the next episode, as promised, we will get to the rebellion that Robert Guiscard returned to in Apulia. The next episode will span a period of four years where there are lots of different things happening, but they do come together, at least in my humble opinion, quite nicely. And I can't wait to tell you about it.